Hello and welcome to the History Book Podcast, a podcast which fills in the gaps your school's history book may have left out, prepares you for your next book quiz, and provides you with interesting tales from the past to annoy your family and friends over dinner with. Today, in this first episode, we're going to talk about two of the most bizarre legal trials that I've found from the past few years. I feel like every other court case we hear about these days gets dubbed the trial of the century, like O.J. Simpson case. But today we're going to take a look at two which I actually think maybe deserve that title, and for better or for worse. Both of these trials involve individuals who are subjected to huge amounts of media coverage, which I think is a large part of the story. This media coverage coloured the public opinion of the defendants and of the case. Maybe you've heard about these stories and maybe you haven't, but even if you haven't, I hope that you enjoy and that you take something away from this. The first case we're going to talk about is the McMartin Preschool Abuse Trial. Now this is, at its time, and I believe this is still true, the longest and most expensive criminal trial in American history. It lasted seven years and cost over $15 billion, which now would be, with inflation, over 27 billion. In 1983, members of the McMartin family who owned and operated a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, were charged with hundreds of acts of sexual abuse of children in their care. This case unleashed nationwide hysteria about child abuse and Satanism in schools, with allegations that included teachers chopping up animals, clubbing a horse, sacrificing a baby in a church, making children drink blood, and even dressing up as witches and flying into the air. One report after another, told of these horrific practices and reading about it now makes you wonder how this case was ever taken as seriously as it was. To begin, I'm going to go over the timeline of the allegations and the case. In May 1983, Judy Johnson dropped off her two-year-old son Billy for his first day at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. Three months later, in August 1983, Johnson called the police to report that her son had been molested at the preschool at the hands of Ray Bucky, who was 25 at the time. The charge was made after Johnson had taken her son to the doctor after finding a rash on his rectal area as well as a spot of blood in the same location. The same month, she meets with Detective Hoag and brings her son to the police station for an interview. On September 7, 1983, Ray Bucky is arrested and on the following day, Police Chief Harry Kuhlemeyer sends a letter to 200 McMartin preschool parents informing them that Ray Bucky has been suspected of child abuse and makes requests for any information. Now I can imagine if you were a parent of the school and you had your child enrolled that this letter would come as quite a shock. You'd assume that if this was happening and you know you're talking and gossiping with the other parents that you would have heard some kind of inkling of it going ahead. Judy Johnson's report accused Ray of molesting her son while his head was in the toilet. Reports made since then have become even more bizarre. Johnson made claims of Bucky wearing a cape, a Santa Claus costume, a minister's robe, and that he took Billy to a car wash and locked him inside the trunk of his car. In October of the same year, the district attorney's office appointed Key McFarlane to interview supposed victims of Bucky and the McMartin preschool staff. And in November, the Children's Institute interviewers, including McFarlane, began diagnosing former McMartin students of having been sexually abused. And by March of 1984, the count of abused students reached 360. This includes students who were in school at the time and students who had left. 
The next month, in April, the Institute launched a campaign for public donations to help with the investigation and investigations of other daycares, which garnered funds of over $11 million by 1989. In January of 1984, which is now the next year, Virginia McMartin, a founder of the school, and Peggy McMartin Bucky, her daughter, were forced to close the preschool after 28 years in business. During this trial, a number of daycare centres in LA were also raided and searched, but no incriminating evidence was uncovered. Between February 1983 and April 1984, many large television outlets and print publications, including the LA Times, had picked up the story, reporting stories of child abuse and animal abuse at the hands of the school's founders and staff. And in March, the Bucky family and other McMartin employees were indicted on 115 counts of child sexual abuse, which included over 208 victims by May of the same year. Bail for Peggy Bucky was set at $1 million, and Ray, who was a member of the family originally accused by Judy Johnson, was held without bail. In July of 1984, a federal grand jury was empaneled to begin its own investigation, and by July, 30 other individuals were placed under investigation too. Prosecutor Lael Rubin announced that in August that seven McMartin teachers were found to have committed nearly 400 sexual crimes on top of the 115 for which they had already faced charges. In March of 1985, a group of nearly 50 McMartin preschool parents began digging in a lot next to the closed school in search of secret underground rooms, which they believed were the scene of many of the crimes. The DA's office then hired an archaeological firm which began its own dig at the site, and no evidence of these secret rooms were ever uncovered. Finally, in 1986, the two-year-long preliminary hearing came to an end, and the district attorney dropped the charge against five of the seven indicted defendants, while Ray and Peggy Bucky were prosecuted on 79 counts and 20 counts respectively of child sexual abuse. In January of 1987, it was revealed that Chief Prosecutor Rubin was revealed to have withheld potentially exculpatory evidence from the defence. What was this evidence? According to the Times reporting, Johnson's mental stability was the major focus of the preliminary hearing. Now this is Judy Johnson who originally made the police report against Ray Bucky. It was revealed that Johnson had also claimed that her dog had been sodomized and that her estranged husband molested their children. This information had been withheld from the defence at the time. Johnson was actually hospitalised in March of 1985 with acute paranoid schizophrenia and never testified at the hearing during Ray and Peggy's trial. On December 19th, 1986, she was found dead in her home and the coroner's office listed her cause of death as fatty metamorphosis of the liver, which is associated with alcoholism. Finally, on July 14th, 1987, four years after the original police report was filed by Johnson, the opening statements in the trial were heard, with the first victim, now 12 years old, taking the stand as a witness for the prosecution. In December 1988, Ray Bucky is granted bail, which is set at $1.5 million, and was released in February of 1989, after spending five years in jail. During the trial, both Peggy and Ray take to the stand in their own defences, and in July of 1990, the jury acquits Peggy Bucky of all counts and is hung with respect to Ray's verdict. Seven of the 12 jurors acquit him of all counts, However, this is not enough to free him, and the district attorney agrees to retry Ray Bucky on eight counts involving three female victims. May I remind you that the preliminary hearing originally tried him on 79 counts and claimed to have uncovered 360 victims. After seven years, in July of 1990, a verdict is reached in the second McMartin trial, where once again the jury is hung on all counts but favours acquittal.
This time, the district attorney, Ira Rayner, decides not to ask for a third trial of Ray Bucky. So that summarizes the main points of the trial, with Ray Bucky being acquitted in 1990, of all counts. And then in 1991, the McMartin preschool was actually demolished. So this case cost McMartin and Bucky families years of their lives. Their business, which had been running without a hitch for nearly 30 years, their reputations, and ultimately resulted in no guilty verdicts, which is what I find this case so interesting. It's the most expensive case than the longest case in all of US history, but nothing came from it, except for what happened in the media. It sparked a mass frenzy in the United States with other high-profile cases, such as the Kelly Michaels case in 1988 and many others. This case, the Kelly Michaels case, sparked a huge wave of panic throughout the US of sexual abuse and Satanism and strange practices happening in schools, which reading this case now seems so bizarre that people would believe this. But at the time, with everything that was happening in the news and with people talking, you can kind of see how it got as big as it did, even though it does seem kind of crazy. We'd all like to think if we heard a story like this now that we wouldn't believe it. But if everyone in your circle is talking about it and major news outlets are all reporting it as if it is true and it's gospel, you'd be almost seen as wrong to not believe it. You'd be seen as, do you not care about your kids in preschool and kids in other schools? Do you not care about this happening? A belief which was widely held at the time was that children don't lie about such important matters. This took a huge hit, and in the McMartin case, many jurors actually found that leading questions from therapists steered impressionable children towards some of those horrific and bizarre allegations that we hear in this case. From reading transcripts of McFarland's interviews with some of the alleged victims today, it's quite shocking, and it does read as incredibly leading. For example, she asks about games that students played in class and appears to be attempting to try and convince the children that some of the make-believes games that they played actually happened and involve cameras and touching when clearly the ch child doesn't know what she's referring to. Repeating, you can read in the statements, the child is saying, I don't know, it wasn't real, we were just playing. Since the time of these McMartin and Michaels case, studies have been done on the suggestibility of children. In the case of interviews, it's found that, understandably, Children who are given false information about certain events often shape reports to be consistent with inaccurate beliefs about what happened through the use of leading questions and other implicit suggestive techniques. It's found that these strategies include the use of leading questions, repeated interviews, bribes or threats, and they do actually work. In 2005, one of the children involved in the case actually retracted their allegations of abuse as an adult, saying, Never did anyone do anything to me, and I never saw them doing anything. I said a lot of things that didn't happen. I lied. Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them an answer that they were looking for. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest, but at the same time, being the type of person I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. So, the most expensive and time-consuming case in US court history resulted in nothing. No verdicts, no sentences and has since been proven to largely be the result of hysteria and has caused a lot of hysteria since. That's what I find to be so interesting about this case. It has such a great impact, but actually no results. The second trial that we're going to talk about 
course is the Dingo Got My Baby trial, which happened at a similar time actually in Australia and involved Lindy and Michael Chamberlain. On August 17, 1980, at a campsite near Australia's famous Ayers Rock, a mother's cry came out of the dark. My God, my God, the dingoes got my baby. Soon, the people of an entire continent were choosing sides in a debate over whether the cry heard that night actually marked an astonishing fatality caused by Australia's white dogs, or was rather a calculated and fanciful lie. In October of 1982, Lindsay Chamberlain was found guilty for the murder of a 10-week daughter, Maurizia. I'm now going to go over the timeline of the case. On August 13, 1980, Chamberlain family, Michael, his wife of 10 years, Lindy, and their three children, Aidan, who was six, Reagan, who was four, and Azaria, who was 10 weeks old, left their home in northern Queensland to spend several days camping and exploring in Ayers Rock, one of Australia's most popular tourist attractions. They arrived on August 16th to the campground and spent the next morning climbing and exploring a formation known as the Fertility Cave. Just outside the cave, Lindy looked up to see a dingo staring at her. She would later tell a detective that she'd been feeling that the wild dog was casing the baby. They began chatting with another couple, Greg and Sally Lowe, who were also vacationing there with an infant. After their meal that evening, Sally was disposing of their rubbish and leftovers when she spotted a dingo following her. Later, she spotted Michael Chamberlain entertaining his son by tossing bread to the same animal. She told him he shouldn't be encouraging them. That evening, after putting the children to bed, Lindy was startled by a cry from the tent and went to investigate. She returned crying, My God, my God, the dingo's got my baby. The group then called the police, and it was Frank Morris who was the first investigator to arrive. He shone a light across the floor of the Chamberlain tent, where he noticed blood on one of the rugs and saw paw prints that led away from the tent entrance, but faded as they hit a road. Soon after that, nearly 300 men and women formed a search team to look for tracks or pieces of clothing around the site. The search returned some dingo tracks, but nothing more. One tourist followed the tracks until he reached a sand ridge where he believed the dog may have laid something down. Unfortunately, nothing was found after this. There were four lawmen assigned to the case. They were Michael Gilroy, Frank Morris, who we mentioned earlier, John Lincoln, and John Bryson. John Lincoln was especially doubtful of the family's account. He was heard saying, not a chance, never happened before, there's a fact you can't beat, never ever happened. So he was saying, there's no way this could have happened, there's no way a dingo stole her child. Even before this case began, there was already deaths. One week after the disappearance, Holly Goodwin, a photographer, set out to Ayers Rock planning to photograph some wild flowers. While walking, Goodwin spotted shredded clothes resting near a boulder. Upon closer inspection, they proved to be a torn nappy and a jumpsuit. On August 28, 1989, Detective Sergeant Graham Charlwood took over the Chamberlain investigation, and in places around Australia, ranging from laboratories to wildlife parks, investigators conducted experiments to test the veracity of Lindy's account of Azaria's disappearance. Blood, vegetation, and hair samples found in Azaria's clothing were examined. Dead dingoes were shot in the Ayers Rock region and were dissected by veterinarians looking for either human bone or human protein. Tears in the fibres of Azaria's clothing were studied, and from these investigations, case for murder began to form. Newspapers fueled suspicions that the Chamberlains killed their baby, possibly as a religious sacrifice. Stories reported rumours that the Chamberlains were somehow linked to Jonestown mass suicide two years earlier, or that Azaria might have been killed to atone for the sins of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. These suspicions were fueled by the fact that Michael Chamberlain served as a minister at Mount Issa Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
a denomination much misunderstood in Australia at the time. On October 1st, 1980 in Mount Charles conducted several hour-long separate interviews with Lindy and Michael Chamberlain. The interview was relatively friendly, but Lindy expressed repeated frustration with leaks to the press of forensic tests that seemed to cast doubt on the account of her events. On December 16, 1980, Ashton Mackey, the prosecutor for the Northern Territory, laid out the case attempted to prove the human intervention in the death of Aritzia Chamberlain. She stated that the evidence suggests that the clothes were planted in the location they were found and show no signs of being removed by a dingo, instead showing signs of removal by a human and added that the damage was inconsistent to what would have been done by an animal. By request of the coroner, Dennis Barrett, the prosecution provided their evidence and he concluded that Lindsay and Michael Chamberlain were not in any degree whatsoever responsible for her death. Still, the number of oddities concerning Azaria's clothing convinced Barrett that the body of Azaria was taken from the possession of the dingo and disposed of by an unknown method, by a person or person's name unknown. In November of 1981, Chief Minister Everingham, as Attorney General for the Northern Territory, filed a motion to denounce the findings of the first inquest by Dennis Barrett, based on newly discovered evidence. This new evidence was discovered after a rigorous search of the family's home and car. What finally convinced the authorities to push for a second inquest was the presence of large quantities of blood in the Chamberlain's dismantled automobile, this second inquest into the death of Aritzia Chamberlain began on December 14, 1981, before Coroner Jerry P. Galvin. Des Sturgis was the barrister assisting the coroner, and he made clear from his questioning of the Chamberlains that it was his belief that Lindy Chamberlain took Azaria and murdered her in the yellow Tirana with a sharp instrument, probably a scissors. Many of the questions directed at the Chamberlains concerned the presence of blood in the family automobile. Sturgis called biologist Joy Cool to the stand, who testified that she found fetal blood beneath the passenger seat of the Tirana. James Cameron, a textile expert, claimed in his testimony that the tear found on Azaria's jumpsuit could hardly have come from a dingo, saying it's more consistent with scissors. Comparing the two inquisitions, a clear distinction can be made between the two. The first was about dingoes and the second was about blood. The blood evidence persuaded Galvin. He charged Lindy Chamberlain with murder and Michael as being an accessory after the fact. On September 13, 1982, Michael and a now pregnant Lindy were brought to trial. The prosecution's first witness was Sally Lowe, who we spoke about earlier, and she offered much more to the defence than the prosecution. Her testimonial described Lindy as being away from the campsite for only a few minutes, approximately six to eight. She was positive of hearing what she had described as a very serious cry coming from the baby inside the tent. She also described Lindy favourously as having a new mom glow. Other witnesses for the prosecution provided similar accounts, which helped the defence case. There were only a few who looked on the Chamberlains unfavourably, mainly stating that their attitudes and fatalistic ideals led them to thinking that their daughter was dead very quickly after her disappearance, quicker than most would come to that conclusion. These fatalistic ideals, we now realise, are due to their beliefs, the church that Michael and Lindy were involved in. It was just their way of processing what had happened. The tide began to turn when forensic experts took to the stand giving evidence suggesting Azaria's clothes had been cut, not torn. Biologist Joy Cool showed her test proving that the blood found on the dash support bracket in the Chamberlain's Tirana belonged to an infant. On October 13, the defence began bringing both Lindy and Michael to the stand with the cross-examination mainly accusing the couple of making up the story entirely. May I respectfully suggest to you that the whole dingo story is mere fantasy? said Ian Barker for the prosecution. Other witnesses for the defence attested to the character of Lindy Chamberlain or recounted their encounters with dingoes in the vicinity. 
the defence saw Professor Barry Bodicher as one of its most important forensic experts. Bodicher attacked Joy Cool's conclusions that the Chamberlain car contained significant quantities of fecal blood. In complicated testimony that might have flown right over the heads of the jurors, Bodicher tried to explain why Cool's testing method might have produced false positives for fetal blood. Some of the most riveting defence testimony came from dingo expert Les Harris, that a dingo, after prey the size of his area, would be most unlikely to hang around with its prey. He also said that dingo kills in the field also produce very little blood, and it's said that most journalists left the courtroom that day expecting an acquittal. However, on October 29th, the foreman of the Chamberlain jury announced its verdict. The jury found Lindy guilty of murder and Michael guilty of being an accessory after the fact. Lindy was charged to life in prison, but Michael's sentence was suspended. Results of the trial were mainly met with praise around the country, and though the jury did convict Lindy, it was later revealed that the jury was initially considered more divided than the verdict indicated, having been split four for conviction, four for acquittal, and four undecided. She was released on bail in 1983 after spending a year in prison. This did not last, and her appeal was rejected. However, Outside the walls of Berenberg Prison, where Lindy was expected to spend the remainder of her lifetime, news reports now cast doubt on the prosecution's evidence and helped to spur a free Lindy movement. The most damning of the new reports showed that what was believed to be blood found inside the couple's car was actually paint emulsion. Still, a nationwide poll showed 52% of the country still believed her to be guilty. In 1986, an English hiker named David Brett would quite unintentionally succeed in gaining Lindy's release after so many before him had failed. He did so by falling off of Ayers Rock during an evening climb and unfortunately perishing. Eight days after his accident, Brett's body was discovered below, where he had lost his footing in an area of dingo layers. As the police scoured the area looking for missing bones that might have been carried off by dingoes, they discovered a once white jacket of a baby belonging to Azaria. On September 15th, two years later, in 1988, the Court of Criminal Appeals unanimously quashed all of the convictions against the couple. This story not only proves that what we think of as the most damaging type of evidence, forensic evidence, can actually be manipulated. It was found that the prosecution's biologist performed hundreds of tests on the paint emulsion in the car, belonging to the Chamberlains to get a result which would show it to be found as blood. Of course, this is not always the case when forensics go wrong. Human error can occur and does in many cases. But just in the McMartin case, which proves the testimonies of children interviewed were manipulated, we cannot take it as gospel. For example, Bite marks can be a controversial piece of forensics that are sometimes used in the courtroom. Like fingerprint analysis, bite marks are compared to a suspect sample, and it's assumed that enough unique characteristics exist to set it apart from everyone else's. However, wrongful convictions have been made due to errors in examination of marks, just as they were in this case. It'll always come down to the decision of the jury to make the final verdict on a case. Unfortunately, what many believe to be the absolute truth once under oath witnesses will tell the truth that investigators are unbiased, will not lead interviewees to answer a question one way or another, or that forensics are scientific and absolute and cannot be incorrect or misinterpreted. I wanted to specifically bring these two cases to the attention of you, my dear listeners, because not only are they fascinating, and thankfully even though the defendants went through years of horrible accusations and traumatic experiences, justice did eventually prevail. The media is also at the heart of the public's misconceptions of the case at the time, in both, large publications released stories about the cases damaging the defendants before they had been given the time to tell their sides of the story, and before the facts of the case had even really been established. Who knows what the next trial we see in our lifetime is disproven in the future. For example, the 
big cases that I can remember in the past few years are George Floyd in 2020, the George Zimmerman shooting involving Trayvon Martin in 2012, Amanda, the Amanda Knox case, maybe her podcast will reveal something, or the Michael Jackson case. I think a lot of people are still unsure about where they stand on this. I had a friend who worked in a production company at the time, Leaving Neverland came out in 2019, who said the documentary makers used all the tricks in the book to make us unsympathetic towards Michael Jackson. I think it's so interesting how much the media can influence what we think of a case. And even after learning the truth of these cases, I'm sure there were still people who heard of them who thought, no, these people are definitely absolutely still guilty. Who would probably love to see the McMartin family or Lindy and Michael Chamberlain behind Mars and are absolutely convinced that they did wrong. At the time both of these cases came out in the 80s and 90s, I think that media wasn't as fragmented as it is now. So we don't have as many stories that we all see and we're all talking about at once. We did have the George Floyd case, for example, but I don't think that happens as often now. I think it will be interesting to look back on stories that we think are huge and important now in a few years' time and figure out what we got wrong and how the media influenced our perceptions of these stories. Because I'm sure at the time it's going on, you always think that you're getting completely true and accurate information, but that's not always the case. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The History Book. I will see you next week. Let me know what you think.